Amen. If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God uh, to the book of Psalms in Psalm 119, the alphabet of godliness, and we'll turn in the Psalms to Psalm uh, 119, verse 97, the Hebrew letter M or Mem. With the Word of God open before us, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to Your Word this evening, and we pray that You would enable us, O Lord, to hide Your law in our hearts, that we might not sin against You, that Your Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our heart with the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of God, that as Your Word abides richly in us, O Lord, we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus, whom to know is everlasting life. And we offer these prayers, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we read the Scriptures this evening, let me say a few words of introduction. We live, certainly, in an information glut culture. Uh, the question is, though, do we have any wisdom? It's like that old saying, there's water, water everywhere in the sea, but not a drop to drink. We have information, information everywhere, but it seems very little wisdom. In 2014, James Billington was the librarian of Congress, the 13th librarian of Congress, and he has the job, of course, of overseeing the Library of Congress now, that library was established by an act of Congress way back in 1800. In 1815, the library accepted 6,487 books from the library of Thomas Jefferson. As of 2012, the Library of Congress had a collection of more than 155 million items, which included more than 35 million catalogue books and other print materials in 470 languages and nearly 120 million additional items in various formats. But in the midst of managing this enormous collection, Billington wondered what the nation could do with all of this information. He described the contemporary world as an infoglut culture. And then he asked the proving question, but have we become any wiser for all of this wisdom. Well, the portion of the psalm this evening before us from 97 down to verse 104 is all about the subject of wisdom, in particular where it is to be found. And it's not to be found, the psalmist says, in mastering many books. It's to be found in mastering the one book, the book of God. And perhaps better, not so much in you mastering that book but in that book, Mastering You. What is wisdom, after all? It is the skill or the ability to live life skillfully before God. Are you a wise man or a wise lady? Young people, that's an important question. Your fathers may ask you every so often, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I imagine there are very few of you will say, well, Dad, when I grow up, you know, I want to be a fool. 
any of you, is that your chosen occupation? I don't think so. A fool is a menace among men, utterly devoid of all the skill needed to live well before God. Now, fools can be very intelligent. Never, never confuse wisdom with knowledge. Knowledge is about testing well. Wisdom is about living well. But the fool is a young man or a young lady whose thoughts, words, and indeed their life are empty of God and of true substance. The Scriptures only commend the fool once in all of the Bible. You only find one commendation for the fool, and that is those rare instances when he's enough sense to keep his mouth shut and therefore hide his true nature. His words simply aren't worth hearing. Better to have silence than to endure the burdensome utterances of the fool. Let's read together this portion of the Scriptures and see its connection to wisdom, getting wisdom, and staying wise. This is the Word of God. Please listen carefully. With what measure you use as you listen, it'll be measured back to you, Jesus says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. So the question I want to put for you this evening is, do you want to escape the trap of folly? It's a hard trap to escape and a very easy one to fall into because folly is bound up in our hearts by nature. The Bible says folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Drive it from him with a rod, and you will save his soul from Shaul. And the rod is one way to escape the, the folly that's bound up in our hearts, but there's another way, an easier way. As Daddy always said, do you want to do this the easy way, son, or the hard way? And the easier way is listening to God's Word. How do you escape the trap of the fool? First of all, if you want to escape the trap of folly, you must be devoted to the source of wisdom. You mustn't just read it. You must love it. You must be devoted to it. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, how I have loved your Torah. The Hebrew is the perfect tense. I have loved your Torah. It denotes a complete and settled disposition of the heart. This isn't just a whimsy kind of, you know, take it or leave it commitment to the Bible that might rise up in your morning plans like a little cloud to be, just to be destined to be obliterated by the light of the noonday sun. This is a settled disposition of the heart. Oh, how I have loved your Torah, past, 
present and the determination to love it in the future. This man's love for God's Word is rooted and grounded in the very fabric of his being. You know that because it grips his thoughts all the day. It is my meditation. It is the muttering under my breath. Um, there was a cartoon character back in the UK, dastardly, and he would, he was a dog, he'd walk about muttering under his breath, and he was, he was never very positive, ratifying things, he, he muttered under his breath. But the psalmist mutters under his breath the, breath the Word of God. It's the same word used, of course, in Psalm 1, um, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, the three verbs. Um, he's, he, he walks not, he stands not, he sits not. The, the three verbs uh, tell the story of a person getting progressively bogged down, progressively less mobile. He, stand, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, he stands not in their way, and he sits not um, in the seat of the scoffer. The seat is the seat of the teacher in society. And here's a man who begins listening to the way of the fool, and before you know it, he's sitting teaching the way of folly and laughing at the way to heaven. And when the way to heaven seems stupid and funny, you're in a pretty tight spot. And the man's not like that, the blessed man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Same word and the same idea. Uh, it is his meditation. He, on God's law, he meditates day and night, all the time. And the psalmist is like that here. It's his uh, meditation. Why does he love God's law? Well, because the wisdom he finds in God's law is better than the wisdom he finds anywhere else, right? Life is full of choices, difficult choices, perplexing choices. Do you choose? And it's not just telling the difference between good and evil. That's a hard choice sometimes, especially when your heart looks at the darkness and finds it bright and exciting, right? That can be a difficult choice. But there's also the choices of the difference between what is good and what is better and what is best. That's difficult. Well, what do you say? What do you leave unsaid? That's, that's a difficult choice, especially when you make your living with your mouth it can be very difficult to know when to stop talking and when to shut up. And there are lots of people who, who, who purport and propose to teach you wisdom, but the psalmist says, the Bible, the Word of God, is the best instructor. It makes me wiser than my enemies and even better than my elders. It makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Why? For it is ever with me. Notice again, it's with him constantly. It's not something you can afford to have, you know, five minutes in the morning. You pick up your, um, your Ligonier table talk and you read the one verse or your uh, Spurgeon's morning and evening, which is a wonderful devotional. I commend it to you. Just one verse and his, his thoughts, wonderful, right? But you need more than just a verse here or there. You've got to have the Bible with you all day long. It's ever with me. And when the Bible is with you as your constant companion, it'll make you wiser than your enemies, which is kind of important because the Christian faces stacks of enemies who are out not just to destroy your body, but who are out to destroy your soul. And the devil's been doing this for rather a long time, like at least 6,000 years. 
And the devil's a finite soul, right? He's this finite spirit. He grows in wisdom with each passing year. The devil is more cunning now, more practiced now, and more skillful now than he was when he persuaded your first parents, Adam and Eve, to exchange paradise for an apple. And he looks at each of you here in this room. He looks at me, looks at Kyle, and he goes, oh, I've seen their sort before. I know just how to deal with them. He's practiced. He's skilled. And if you have God's law with you constantly, you have a source of wisdom that will make you wiser than even the devil. And you see that perfectly displayed in the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ in His human nature is a man, right? He's a mere man in His human nature, and He experienced humanity in all of its abbreviation, in all of its weakness. He grew in wisdom. The eternal God, who never grew in wisdom, and in the human nature experienced what it was to grow in wisdom. And so, when, when, when Jesus was a baby, right, in His in the mother's arms, you were to ask Him, what's E equals MC squared? He would have looked at you and gone, go, 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 go. He wouldn't have reached across from his little infant mind into his divine nature and kind of cheated and pulled across his divine nature into his human mind to make his human life easier for himself. He never did that. Jesus never used his divine nature to make his human life easier. When he was carrying the cross up the Via Dol or down the Via Dolorosa, he was crushed by its weight. He didn't just reach across with Samson-like strength for the Holy Spirit and say, no problem, I, I can get energized. No, he felt weakness. As a child, he grew in wisdom and in stature. And if, you, if your theology is too small to allow you a human Savior to grow in wisdom, then what are you going to do with him growing as a stature? He grew from being a He didn't come out of the womb six foot five or six foot one, whatever his height was. Probably not six foot five, but you know what I mean. He didn't come out fully grown. He came out as a baby in his body, but also a baby, a baby in his mind. And he grew in wisdom. He was wiser at 12 than he was at 9, and wiser at 9 than he was at 6, and wiser at 6 than he was at 2, and wiser at 33 than he was at all of that time. And you'd have got more wisdom from him the further he went on, right? And so his humanity was real. He wasn't a supercharged man like Superman with superhuman strength. He was a man with a, with a reasonable soul, a human mind, and a human spirit, and a human body, but not a human person. He was a divine person with a divine nature and a human nature, and the two natures didn't mix. They couldn't without the one destroying the other. If you mix man and God, you get neither man nor God at the end, right? You get more than man and less than God, and that's a problem if you need all of God and all of humanity together in one person to save you from your sins. Um, and so, when Christ met the devil in his human nature, we can say the devil's IQ would have far outstripped him. The devil in his, hum in his infernal mind is smarter than any mere human being, smarter even than God the Son in His human nature, not the divine nature, but the human nature. More cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
More coming. And yet Jesus trounces him. Why? Because again and again and again, when Jesus faced the temptations of the devil, he didn't lean on the mind of a man. He leant upon and quoted the Word of God. It is written was the devil's answer to every single, oh sorry, was Christ's answer to every single temptation from the devil. And when he, he looked to God's Word and he quoted God's Word, the devil couldn't touch him. When Jesus sang Psalm 119, your commandment makes me wiser than all my enemies. He didn't say, that is true for thee, but not for me. He didn't go, this, this verse is, is relevant for the, you know, the hoi polloi, but not for me. No, Christ was wiser than the devil because he, he, he lived and he thought with the wisdom of God, and he lived and he thought with the wisdom of God because he lived and he thought with the Word of God in his mind all the time. And you face the same enemy and the same danger from Satan. And if you want to be wiser than your enemies in the spiritual realm, you've got to have the Word of God in your mental realm. But also, he says, not just wiser than my enemies, but he says, even better than my elders. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, he's not being arrogant here, the psalmist. He's not saying, you know, I have more. It's not like a student at RTS saying, I have more wisdom than all of my teachers who, who also are in the Word of God, right? He's speaking about teachers who have maybe fallen away. I remember a professor, he's no longer at RTS, but he's a professor, and um, he was always a wee bit cocksure and, 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 frankly, arrogant, and would kind of make fun of students who were too godly. It was quite, quite disturbing. He, he ended up getting released, thankfully, from RTS, but he was very smart, taught philosophy for a while. And I remember he did this course, I never took the course, but it was on culture and kind of Christianity. And in this, in this course, he would watch um, movies that were semi-pornographic, like American Beauty. I've never seen the movie, but I've heard it's not good at all. It's about this man who has an affair with a teenage girl, or has fantasized of having an affair with a teenage girl next door, right? And it's purit. And I was working in the library, as in behind the desk. I was, one, I was a librarian at RTS, one of the junior... I went and got books. I wasn't a librarian. But I put books away. But I worked in the library to help pay the bills. And I was sitting at the desk, as you do. And he was standing in front of the desk talking to a bunch of students about American beauty. Now, the funny thing was, or the sad thing was, this man's wife was still in Africa working as a missionary. So he's spending, he's spending most of his time... Um, away from his wife, and he's watching semi-pornographic movies with students. And they were talking about this, and, 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 and I looked up, and I, they were talking about the movie, and I said to him, so when you watch this movie, do you get aroused by it? And he says, well, of course, it's kind of part of the experience. And um, I said to him, um, what about your sin nature? Is it wise to feed it? 
He that is covered in gasoline ought to do well to stay away from matches and sparks. Now, this man was a genius. He taught at the Naval College for a while. But his thinking, at least in that sense, was deviating from God's Word. And here's me, a young 27-year-old student. And I was wiser than him, I trust. Why? Because I listened to God's Word. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. I think about them. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Notice, and there's a parallelism here, right? The Hebrew poetry will will say the same thing two different ways, right? So, notice, look at verse 99 and 100. I have more understanding than all my teachers. That's the first part. Now, look at the first part of verse 100. I understand more than the aged. So, you see the first part of 99 and the first part of 100 are saying the same thing, just different ways. Yes? Nodding. Right. Look at the second part of the two verses. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Look at the second part of verse 100. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. And I'm putting it to you that there's a connection between the second part of verse 99 and the second part of verse 100. The one leads to the other like water and wet. Your testimonies are my meditation, for I keep your precepts. Thinking about God's Word goes hand in hand with living and obeying God's Word. If you don't believe me, look at um, Joshua 1 a second. Verse 7. Actually, verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Do you see? Meditation upon God's Word in your head leads to obedience to God's law in your life. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that, in order that, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Back to Psalm 119. Your testimonies are my meditation. I keep your precepts. That's why he has more understanding than all his teachers. Notice, it's not enough just to think about it. You've got to carry that thoughtfulness into practice. And listen to me, young people. There are some things, there is a moral element to wisdom. There are some things you will never be able to understand if you live a life of disobedience to God. Disobedience makes you stupid. Or you become what you repeatedly choose to do. If you repeatedly do foolish things, what are you going to become? A fool, a foolish person. I was telling that to the Father-Son conference up in Maryland 
last week about sexuality, I said to the young lads there, these college students and some seniors in high school, you know, you, you go to college and, and let's say, you know, along with some of your friends, you have a, a friend with benefits attitude towards women. You, you have casual sexual relationships with them. And let's say you're a very attractive young man and you're able to have a hundred sexual relationships over three years, four years. That's not something to shake a stick at. That's, that's to be that attractive to the opposite sex is quite something. But there's a catch. You can't treat a young lady as a casual sexual partner without becoming the kind of person who treats a young lady as a casual sexual partner. You can't, you can't live and practice sex as if sex was meaningless without, the, without becoming the kind of person for whom sex is meaningless. You live in God's universe. You always have to pay the ferryman. And it's only as you think about God's law and then practice God's law that you develop God's wisdom. And if you, if you go, if, if you turn against God's law and defy Him and disobey Him, you'll never have God's wisdom, which is the only kind of wisdom that's worth having. There's a connection between obedience and wisdom and disobedience and folly. And you should think about that, man, next time you, you, you view pornography. Not just choosing to view ladies in a state of undress. You are choosing to become a fool. And a pervert. What you do affects your character. It affects your mind, your mental competency, your wisdom. You can't live like a fool and pretend to be a wise man or a wise young lady. If you want to escape the trap of folly, you must be devoted to the source of wisdom. Moving on, if you want to escape the trap of folly, you must be discipled by the God of wisdom. And you see that in the next verses, verse 101 and 102. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Now, notice here, again, there's parallelism. The same verses are saying the same thing in a slightly different way, although it kind of, he's building. Each lesson, it's called an, um, an, an ascending parallelism. The, the, the next verse is saying the same thing, but adding a little more to it, you might say, taking you deeper into the lesson. Notice in both verses, he has to hold his feet back. Lee Marvin in Painter Wagon was born under a wandering star. I was born under a wandering star. I was born under a wandering star. The psalmist was born with a wandering heart. 
He has to keep his feet back. It's like those, those masters who walk their dog. Actually, they're not. They're not walking the dog. The dog is walking them. It's like, mm! and they're pull, the dog is pulling them down the road, right? And that's the psalmist's experience of his heart. I have to hold my heart back. My heart's like a, uh, a young puppy dog or a poorly trained adult dog that wants to run after um, every errant scent, wants to sniff every lamppost and every um, post box on the way around the neighborhood, won't stay at heel. I have to hold my feet back from every evil way. The implication is my, my feet want to go every evil way, and they need constant restraint in order that I might keep your word. And the next verse tells, him, tells us the ultimate reason he's able to hold his feet back. I do not turn aside from your rules. Why? For, and Hebrew is very emphatic. For you yourself have taught me. It stresses God's participation in the lesson. You yourself have taught me. I say this reverently. By itself, the Bible is not enough to give you wisdom. You need an adequate teacher, and that teacher is not me. It's God Himself. You must have God Himself teach you, or you will never be taught at all. Turn back in Psalm 25 a second. And I love, one of the reasons why I love the Psalms are probably my favorite part of the Bible. And that's difficult to say because I love it all, but I do I love the Psalms because they're so refreshingly honest about not just human nature, but my nature. 25 verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. I am a stupid, stupid stupid student, and I need you to make me know. Make me know. Cause me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. You are a Savior. You save me not just from my sins, but you save me from myself and my folly. For you I wait all the day Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth. What is so, so encouraging? Lord, if you look at my life and my sins, you're only going to see reasons to cast me off and to cast me out of the school of your instruction. Do not look at my sins. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake. O Lord. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness as plural. They have been of old. I've been sinning since I was a young man. You've been loving from the days of eternity. Don't let my little sin wear out your ancient loving kindness. Isn't that beautiful? Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He teaches sinners in the way. The fact, Lord, that I'm a sinner is a pretty big reason for you not to teach me. But don't forget, you are good and you're upright. So don't, don't let my badness overcome your goodness. He's arguing with God in a respectful way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Not just some of them. All of the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Whatever verse 10 means, it doesn't contradict verse 11. Yes, Lord, I know all of your paths are loving kindness and truth to those who keep your covenant and your testimonies. But part of keeping covenant isn't perfect obedience. It's having the wisdom to come to God and confess your sin. Keeping covenant isn't about, I've done my part now, you do your part, God. Keeping covenant means, God, I have messed up my part completely, but I'm coming to you because in your covenant you promise to find a deeper logic to undo all of my sin. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it's great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He, God, will instruct him in the way he should choose. That's the wonderful thing, boys, girls, young people. That's the wonderful thing about this book, right? If you will take this book and you'll read this book and let this book read you, you will have God as your teacher, the God who designed the Milky Way and the cosmos, who laid the foundation of the world, about whom Paul said, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. You say, Well, I find this book boring. <laughs> That's okay, right? The problem with that is not the book, the problem with that is you. And if the problem is in you, that's. That gives you every reason to come to this book in order that this book might straighten you out and fix you up. Thomas Jefferson, it's amazing. Thomas and Jefferson and didn't like the Bible very much. He, had the, he, had, he wrote this book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And in that book, he basically, in his own mind, extracted the pure principles of Jesus Christ. He stripped away all of the artificial vestments of the Bible that had been muffled by priests. He dismissed the Platonists and the Plotinists, the Staggerites and the Gamaliites, the Eclectics, the Gnostics, the Scholastics, the Lugos, the Demiurgos, the Aeons and the Demons, the male and female, and all the long lines, etc., etc. I left all that nonsense out, and I reduced our volume to the simple evangelists, selecting even from them the very words only of Jesus, pairing off all the amphibologists, the amphibologisms, he's a man with big words, amphibologisms, I have no idea what that says, amphibologisms, into which they have been led by forgetting often or not understanding what had fallen from them, and so forth, all their misconceptions. And he goes on and on and on, very long, sounds very smart. And he gets this little, this, he cuts, he gets a pair of scissors and cuts out what he doesn't like and pastes in what he does into his new Bible, which he calls the life and morals of Jesus and others. What he's saying is he doesn't trust this Bible. The amazing thing, though, is that in attempting such a feat, he's declaring that he does trust himself. If the Bible is not God's Word, 
Who gets to decide what is and what is not worth reading? It comes down to you. And there's times I can understand why people don't understand the Bible, because they're sinners and so forth and so on. What amazes me is that they do understand, they do trust themselves. And the Bible says, or the psalmist says here, that is where I get off. I have a wandering heart and wandering feet. And I have not lost faith in the Bible, but I have lost faith in myself. Remember as what God did to Hezekiah? Remember, I never forget Ralph Davis, Ben's reading Ralph Davis up at Grove and just loving it. It's such an encouraging. My teacher, the girl who taught me Hebrew, is teaching Ben Old Testament and giving him Ralph Davis as well, which is wonderful. And um, it's thrilling my soul to hear Ben's delight in Ralph Davis. But nonetheless, Ralph's in class with us, Dr. Davis, and he's talking about Hezekiah and that. I think it's in Chronicles, the Chronicles account, whenever the chronicler says, and God took his hand off Hezekiah to test him to see what was in his heart. And Ralph Davis stopped and said, stop, boys. Why is that verse in the Bible? We're going, I don't know. <laughs> he goes, it's to cause you to beg God, don't ever do that to me. You know it's in my heart. I know it's in my heart. Don't take your hand off me. If you do, there's no limit to how far or how fast I will fall. If you want to escape the trap of folly, first of all, you must be devoted to the source of wisdom, and secondly, you must be discipled by the God of wisdom. You must do not let God go until He teach you. You've all had wonderful teachers. Opening this book, you can have Jesus Christ as your teacher. That's, that'll change the way you read the Bible. Jesus Christ will teach you. Form your thoughts, your affections, your desires, enlightening the choices you make. Take Psalm 25, 4 to 11 as your Bible reading prayer. When you open the Bible, Lord, make me know your ways. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you the God of my salvation. Oh God, remember your compassion, your loving kindnesses. For they had been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, O oh Lord, teach me. Remember me. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Don't let him go. Jacob says, I'll not let you go until you bless me. Lord, I've got a more modest proposal. I will not let you go until you teach me. And then lastly, if you don't want to be a fool, you must be drawn away from the defiance of wisdom the defiance of wisdom. The last two verses, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Now, you've already seen him. He's holding the Word of God in his head. He's loving the Word of God in his life, in his heart, and therefore he's practicing the Word of God in his life. It's in his head what you think directs what you love. Eve saw the tree as good, and she loved the tree as good, and she took the tree as good. Head, heart, life. Head, heart, hand. The psalmist has God's Word in his head. It's sweet to his heart 
and therefore it guides him in his life. And because he loves the truth of God's Word, he has learned to hate every false way. And so what I'm saying to you in this last point is there's a link between loving God's Word and wisdom and hating sin and folly. It's simply not possible to delight in sin and God's Word. You must choose, and the one will destroy the other. Either you will love sin and hate God's Word, or you will love God's Word and you will hate sin. As John Piper's grandmother wrote in the fly leaf of his Bible, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Same truth. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. One of the most scary verses in the Bible, 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn there a second with me. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. But 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, Paul here is speaking about Antichrist. Two verse eight. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And I believe there will be a specific Antichrist at the end of time, and he will be he will be very wise. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and he'll take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And he will, all the world will follow him in one sense, and he will wage war against the church. And Christ will destroy him by his coming. Who is this Antichrist? He is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. And he'll come with all of the deception of wickedness. For whom? For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They didn't receive. It was something God was willing to give to them, but they didn't receive it. It doesn't say those who didn't have the love of the truth in them. Those who wouldn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God Himself will send upon them, these people who didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. It's almost God's, as if God's saying, if you don't want to love my word, then I will help you believe the lie as a judgment upon you. If that's not what that Bible is saying, help me. Right? For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. 
That's incredible. Notice the connection between verse 12 and verse 10. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Why didn't they receive the love of the truth so as to be saved? Because really and truly they were taking pleasure in wickedness. You can't love sin and the Bible. You've got to choose one. And I'm sure they had all kinds of sophisticated reasons for why they didn't believe the truth, all the errors in the Bible and everything else, all these other reasons and so forth and so on. But the real reason, they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Because they took pleasure in wickedness. But, Paul says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's all my Calvinism. Why do, why do some of you love the book more than your sexual urges? The book of God more than greed? Why do you love the Scriptures more than sin? Because God loved you. And because God chose you from the beginning for salvation, not because you were sanctified and believed the truth, He chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That that, that your belief in God's truth and your hungering after holiness is actually an evidence that God chose you from the beginning for salvation. Maybe you're feeling nervous. Maybe you're thinking, I'm on the wrong side of this debate. I'm actually loving my sins, and I'm not loving the Scriptures. What do I do? Back to the God of wisdom. I will not let you go until you teach me. Lord, do not remember the sins of my youth. Remember your loving kindness from eternity and have mercy upon me, O God. And draw me back from my sins and draw me to my Savior and help me to spend time in the Bible. And may it not be a dead, dry, dusty book, but may it, may it come with the life and power of the voice of God. Because if you read the Bible and feel nothing, at the times I do, the problem is not the Bible. The problem is me. Heaven and hell are in the balance. Wisdom and folly are on the offering. The devil wants you to be a fool. Christ wants to teach you wisdom. Who are you going to listen to? Jesus is literally dying to teach you. He went to the cross bore away your sins, removed all the, the, the legal reasons for your damnation, if you will just come to Him and let Him disciple you. If He's willing to be damned for you, won't you let Him disciple you? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love the Word of God. It's, it's the best book. There's no book like it. The best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the safest way of dying, all taught in Scripture. Grant, O Lord, young and old here, male and female, rich and poor, wise and fool, O God, come and lay hold of them and give them a heart to read the Bible. All the great wise men of truly wise men of history, 
from Solomon to Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and everyone in between, have one thing in common. They took your book, and they read it, and they internalized it, and they practiced it. It changed their life, and it changed their eternity. Help us, O God, to love the Word of God and the God of the Word, for Jesus' sake. Amen.